In 2012, two men walked into Master Shop Cake or Masterpiece Cake Shop and asked the owner, James Phillips, or Jack Phillips, excuse me, to bake them a cake for their wedding. He respectfully declined, citing that it went against his religious convictions. Well, these two men went to the American Civil Liberties Union, who on their, on their behalf filed a complaint to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. A year and a half later, a judge handed down the decision that indeed Jack Phillips had violated the law by discriminating against these two men, and they, they ordered him to, quote, cease and desist from discriminating, unquote, against gay couples. Well, to make a very long legal story short, five years later in 2018, the United States Supreme Court, in a decision of seven to two, decided in favor of Jack Phillips. But this was not a victory for religious freedom. Rather than making the ruling about religious freedom, their ruling was solely on the basis that the Colorado commissioners, quote, showed elements of clear and impermissible hostility, unquote, toward Jack Phillips's beliefs. In other words, the previous rulings were wrong, not because they violated his religious beliefs, but because they were motivated by religious animus. Now, rewinding the tape a little bit, on the day that the Supreme Court heard the arguments for this case, a lawyer called his bakery and asked them to bake a cake so that he could celebrate the anniversary of his gender transition. As you might guess, Jack respectfully declined again and waited for the Supreme, uh, Supreme Court to make their decision. Well, in the intervening months while the Supreme Court was deciding the case, behind the scenes, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission prepared their decision on this new situation, which, of course, this lawyer filed a complaint. So after the Supreme Court handed down their decision in favor of Jack Phillips, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission once again cited him for violating the law. In addition, this particular lawyer lawyer filed three consecutive lawsuits against Jack Phillips personally. The first one failed, the second one was dropped by a judge, and the third one was in the process of, uh, of the legal system. The Alliance Defending Freedom filed a lawsuit against the state of Colorado on behalf of Jack Phillips, citing uh, that they were discriminating, that the state itself was discriminating against him and against his religious beliefs. That was toward the end of 2018, coming into 2019. And earlier this year, uh, really in the spring and summer, the lawyer agreed to drop his case against Jack Phillips if the ADF would drop theirs against the state. I can only guess that the lawyer saw the writing on the wall that this was not going to end in his favor and for the favor of their movement. Well, in the process of almost eight years of legal battles, Jack Phillips lost almost half of his business in terms of revenue, in terms of employees. He received death threats, his shop was repeatedly vandalized, and he re received innumerable abusive phone calls. And while we should be grateful for him that his legal battles, at least for the moment, seemed to be over and that he won... The lesson I want to draw out today is that right now, Christians and our beliefs are being attacked in our own country. News articles and legal briefs may reflect a certain amount of antagonism toward Christian principles, but if you really want to know what the culture thinks about Christianity, you can just spend some time on the comment section of those articles and related articles. Or if you're on social media and you have friends who are unbelievers, just post an affirmation of biblical morality and see what happens. The doors holding back widespread persecution are starting to bend and arrows are starting to make it through the cracks. In light of this, I want us to consider the question today, what are we to do? How should this reality affect the way that we live? 
there are some who are trying legal means to protect religious freedom, and we heard even Pastor Leek's prayer, the efforts that the president and vice president are making. But the reality is that while there are processes in the legal system that are taking place, the court of public opinion has essentially made its decision. So where does that leave us? Should we, as some are doing, simply fall in line, get with the times and capitulate to the culture? Should we do as others are doing and keep our religion to ourselves and separate our private morality from our public interaction? Should we, as yet others are doing, just step aside from this whole Christianity thing and and move into some other religion or non-religion that we deem best? Well, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture today that is addressed to believers who were facing those very temptations. They were oppressed, they were persecuted, and while they stood firm at first, the heat, as the heat turned up, they were tempted to defect to their former faith, to let go of their convictions, and to distance themselves from other believers. This church, this group of people, were at one time zealous for the truth. They were zealous for the faith. They were willing to endure all kinds of hardship and persecution as they fellowshiped with one another and supported one another. But as time wore on, they wore down. They became dull in their hearing, which is to say they got tired of listening to the truth. They got tired of the suffering, knowing that they could essentially make it all go away if they would just let go of their convictions. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that it would be helpful for us to hear what was written to these believers so that we can prepare ourselves in advance. Would you agree? Well, then turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, toward the end of the New Testament. Hebrews is unique among the epistles in that it is, in a sense, a transcript of a sermon. And what makes this sermon so compelling is that it is kind of like a cobweb. And as all of the points and the principles and the applications are laid down, they intersect with one another and strengthen the whole. And in our text, which is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, verses 19 and 20, or excuse me, 19 to 21, are a summary of the two main points that the author, the the preacher, if you will, has been making from chapter 7 up to this point. And then verses 22 to 25 are three specific applications of how we are to respond to these truths. So follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What the author communicates here and what we need to know is how to respond in the face of opposition and persecution. And the answer in a sentence is this. In the face of difficulty, we are to remember our privileges and pursue faithfulness. The title for this message is The Privileges and the Pursuits of the Purified. If you have put your faith in Christ, you are purified. And the author here reminds us of two extraordinary privileges and three vital pursuits. So let's begin by remembering our privileges. The first privilege is that we are privileged to enter the presence of God. 
we are privileged to enter the presence of God. Look at verse 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The author uses Jewish temple language here to say that we have the privilege of entering into the presence of God. If you turn back a page or two to chapter 9, we're reminded of what access to God's holy and special presence was like for nearly 1,500 years. Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table of the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. From the time of the wilderness wandering all the way up to 70 AD, the Jewish people had a center of worship. That is, a place where you would go to worship God. If you wanted to worship God, you had to go there. It wasn't just the place of corporate worship. It was the place of worship, period. For a few hundred years, it was a portable tent, which he describes here. And then Solomon built the temple, which was destroyed, rebuilt, and then rebuilt again. In front of the tabernacle was a courtyard, and in that courtyard is where the priests would offer their sacrifices on the altar, and only Jews were allowed into that courtyard. Later, when Herod rebuilt the temple, he built it with multiple courts, and how close you could get to the holy place depended on your DNA. If, If you, like me, are a Gentile, Uh, you could go into the court of the Gentiles, which was the outermost court. That's where the money was exchanged. That's where animals were sold. Beyond that was the court of the women, where only Jewish women could be. Beyond that was the court of the Israelites, where only Jewish men could be. And in the innermost court was the court of the priests, where they themselves would offer sacrifices. Inside the tabernacle or the temple, verses 2 to 3 here remind us that there were two sections. The the first section, the holy place, according to verse 6, is where the priests would go regularly to offer their sacrifices. That's where the lampstand was. That's where the, the table with the sacred bread was. But a veil guarded the way into that tabernacle, into that first holy place, because only those who had been consecrated and ritually cleansed could enter into the tabernacle or the temple. But then there was a second curtain. Look at verses 3 to 5 there of chapter 9. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we, can, we cannot now speak in detail. Indeed, we don't have time. The second section was the holy of holies or the most holy place, depending on your translation. This is where the special presence of God was located, at least up until the the glory of God departed from the temple in 587 B.C. before the first fall of Jerusalem. Well, who could enter into this second veil? Look at verse 7. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the Sins of the people committed in ignorance. Under the old covenant, to say that access to God's presence was exclusive is an understatement. If if you, like me, were a Gentile, we, we wouldn't even have a chance to get close. The only way you had the ability to get into that special presence of God was to be not only a Levite, but a high priest. And the high priest had to be of the lineage of Aaron. And the high priest was not just any of the sons of Aaron, but those who were chosen year by year, really by lot, by a casting of the dice. 
And even then, even if you were the high priest, you could only go once a year. And you only went for one or really two purposes. One, to sacrifice for your own sins, and the second, to sacrifice for the unintentional sins of the people. You see, the high priest, as he went into the presence of God, he didn't come with a list of prayer requests. He didn't come to fellowship with God. He came really to do two things. Make his sacrifices and make it out alive. <laughs> Entering God's presence was exclusive but also fearful. The high priest didn't carry a bowl of blood for nothing. The, the blood reminded him that access into God's presence required death. And it required death because we are sinners. And the high priest himself is a sinner. And we need a death to cover our sin in order to be in the presence of God. The only reason he could pass through that second veil into the presence of God is because an animal had died in his place. No doubt every year the high priest thought about Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, who departed from God's instructions in burning fire and God incinerated them instantly. And the high priest probably went into that holy of holies hoping that everything had been carried up properly so that they would make it out alive. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like, oh, I wish I could enter into the presence of God? Or if you could, I hope I make it out alive. Probably not. But Why? Why have you never felt like that? Why is it that we can enter God's presence without any fear? And in fact, with confidence? Well, the answer is certainly not found in you or me. It's not in our goodness. It's, it's not in our righteousness. Nor is the answer, as some suppose, found in the fact that, or in the idea that God has changed his mind. That God himself felt, you know, this is really boring. I only get to spend time with someone once a year. I'm going to loosen the requirements. No, not at all. God did not change his mind and remove the requirements to enter his presence. There is only one reason you and I can enter into the presence of God. And his name is? Jesus. That's right, Jesus. Look again at Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. What is it about Jesus that enables us to have confident access to God's presence? He lists two things here. Number one, we enter by the blood of Jesus. And number two, we enter by a new and living way that he opened for us through his flesh. Look closer, though, at verse 19. Notice that he doesn't say we enter with the blood of Jesus, but rather by the blood of Jesus. To enter with the blood of Jesus is as if we were sacrificing him over and over and over again. And that is, in fact, what the theology of the Catholic Mass is. But we don't enter with his blood, we enter by his blood. Here's what it means to enter by the blood of Jesus. Just let your eyes look up to verses 12 to 14 of here of chapter 10. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are, being who are being sanctified. Understand that while God instituted the, the, the sacrificial and the priestly system to limit access to him, in truth, it wasn't that system that prevented access to him. His system, the sacrificial and priestly system, actually enabled access to him. What limited access to God was our own sin. And it was the all-sufficient blood of Jesus that finally removed our sin, giving us free and confident access to God. This means that if you're here and you are not a Christian, you do not have access to God's presence. He won't listen to your prayers. 
He doesn't consider your religious acts as something worth noting. It's not until you acknowledge that it is your sin that separates you from God and that Christ himself is the sufficient sacrifice for you that you can have access to God's presence. But until then, you will remain separated from him. Verse 14 at the end there says, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What that means is when a person repents of their sin, when they acknowledge, it is true, I am a sinner. They acknowledge that, they turn away from that, and they believe on Jesus as the all-sufficient sacrifice for their sin. God covers that person with the righteousness of Christ. And thus, in God's eyes, those who are separated from sin and unto God, that's what it means to be sanctified, they are viewed in God's eyes as perfect because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. This, this is the doctrine of justification that God declares those who are sinners to be righteous. Not because we have our own righteousness, but because God has covered our sin with Christ's righteousness. That is the gospel. That is the good news that sinners can be righteous and have access and a relationship to God. Again, we don't come into God's presence with the blood of Jesus, carrying the blood of Jesus. We come into God's presence wearing the righteousness of Christ. The blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from sin, affords us that privilege of entering God's presence. So we have no more tabernacle, no more temple, no more priest, no more high priest, no more holy of holies, no more blood, no more pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship. Just free and confident access to God's presence wherever and whenever. Now coming back to verse 20 of our text, he says, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. For the sake of time, let me quote the end of the note in the MacArthur Study Bible. He writes, when the high priest on the day of atonement entered into the Holy of Holies, the people waited outside for him to return. When Christ, he goes on to say, when Christ entered the heavenly temple, he did not return. Instead, he opened the curtain and exposed the Holy of Holies so that we could follow him. Unquote. So no longer is there this, this dark, this heavy, this thick curtain that was implying keep out that's preventing our access to God. That curtain, as you remember, was torn in two from top to bottom. Instead, the slain Lamb of God stands at the door of heaven and beckons us to come and enter into the presence of God. There is no toll, there's no ticket, you have unlimited and free and confident access because of Jesus and his shed blood. Under the old covenant, access to God was exclusive and fearful, but under the new covenant, through Christ, it is free and confident. If you have believed in Jesus, access to God's presence is your privilege. The second privilege is that we have Jesus as our high priest. Of course, as we were singing, it was popping out all over the place in the songs, and I don't know if Brandon chose those songs on purpose. I almost wish we could re-sing all those songs so you could see how, how much of an emphasis that was in our singing today. But we have the privilege of having Jesus as our high priest. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God... If you've been part of certain religions or perhaps the Roman Catholic system, you, you understand what it means to have a priest. A priest is viewed as a, a holy man, a man who has one foot on earth and one foot on he in heaven, as it were. He is the conduit through which prayers and supplications go up to God, and he is the one through which grace and forgiveness come from God. When Jesus accomplished his work and ascended into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God, he abolished the need for a human priesthood. Chapter 9, verse 24. 
It says, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. There's no longer any need to confess your sins to a man or to have a man pray for you or to have a man deliver your prayers to God. In fact, to have a priest on earth is to deny Jesus in heaven. To go to a man on earth with your sins and prayers is to reject the work that Christ is doing right now on your behalf in heaven. But notice, Jesus, or the author doesn't say that Jesus is just a priest. He doesn't even just say here that he is the high priest. He says that he is a great priest. In contrast to the Levitical priesthood, what, what is it that makes Jesus a great high priest? Well, let me highlight some answers that we find even here in the book of Hebrews. And I have at least six here in my notes, but for the sake of time, we're just going to look at three. So if you want to know the other three, read verses uh, or ch- chapters 1 to 5, but we'll start in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verses 23 and 24, the author writes, The former priest, talking about the Levitical priesthood, on the one hand, the former priest existed in greater numbers because they were prevented from, by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus is the great high priest because he never dies. There is no turnover in the priesthood of heaven. There's no one who, who, who can replace him because he never retires. In chapter 8, verse 6, we read this. Therefore, finding fault with them, he says, finding fault with the Levitical priest, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Verse 10, for this is my covenant that I will make over the house of Israel in those, after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his, his brother saying, know the Lord, for all will know me. I just realized I'm, I'm reading verses 8 to 11. I should have read verse 6. But he has obtained, verse 6, a more excellent ministry. We just read about that ministry. By as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. The promises that I read, verses 8 to 11 and going on to verse 12, are the better covenant, the better promises that Christ has. Jesus is the greatest priest because he presides over a better covenant. He can say more than simply, your sins are forgiven. Until next time. He can say more than someday a Messiah will come. No, Jesus is the Messiah of the new covenant. And he gives life and freedom and forgiveness and grace. He gives us the new heart and the new spirit. And he teaches us and so much more. He is the great high priest. In chapter 9, verse 28, we read this. So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. Jesus is the greatest priest because he only had to make one sacrifice. And all the sins, every last sin of anybody who has believed on him is wiped away. And because Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice, Sacrifice for sin, he is our perfect high priest, abolishing the need for any other. But it's not just his sacrifice that makes him such a great high priest. It is his life lived in the trenches of humanity. He felt the pangs of hunger and thirst. He knew what it was to lose family and friends. He experienced rejection and humiliation and persecution and sorrow. He experienced joys and laughter and satisfaction, and passion. He experienced all of the highs and lows of life, all the while never giving in to temptation or sinning in any way. And so when we come to him, 
We're not coming to a man of the cloth who on the one hand understands our experience because he too is a sinner like us, but on the other hand can't really help us all that much because he sins just like we do. There's a limit to how much a human, human priest can help us, but Jesus stands as our great high priest, having experienced the extent of human suffering and pain and difficulty and joys and and wonders of life, but also not having sin. And thus, he can give us grace. He can give us help. He can give us power to live for him. My friends, it is a comfort to know that Jesus is aware of our suffering, is it not? Because he knows all things. But isn't it even more that the reason he can give us comfort It's because he understands pain. When we pray in the midst of sorrow, when we pray to him in pain, we're not praying to an unfeeling God. We're we're praying to Jesus who experienced the the full extent of physical suffering. We're praying to Jesus who experienced the full extent of emotional suffering. He knows what it's like to have your own family members attack you. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused in public and in private. He knows what it's like to be tempted to the uttermost. He knows what it's like to stare death in the face. And he, more than any human who has ever lived, knows what it's like to be abandoned by God. And as a result, he is merciful and he gives us sufficient grace. What a privilege it is to have Jesus as our high priest. We we have direct access to God and we have a high priest in heaven. These are our two privileges. And as the saying goes, with great privilege comes great responsibility. So the author of Hebrews now draws a straight line between those two privileges and three vital pursuits because because we have access to God and because we have Jesus as our high priest, we should pursue three things. Number one, we should pursue the Lord with a firm faith. Look at verse 23, excuse me, verse 22. He writes, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What does it mean to draw near? Certainly it's the opposite of running away. It's the opposite of living your life in rebellion against God when life gets difficult. Instead instead of isolating ourselves and stepping away from God, We are to draw near to him. We are to come under his protective wing, as it were. We are to come to him with our our pain, with our confusion, with our sorrows, even with our complaints. We are to come near to him in prayer. But it also means that we are to come under his rule and abide by his precepts. It means that you live by faith in all that he has revealed. In chapter 11, verse 6, we read, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. To draw near to God means not only that you intellectually assent to the fact of his existence, but that you exercise faith in his promises. It's what it means, as it says, to draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. You come to him sincerely and with conviction that I know this is true. You don't come to him as a matter of religious formality. Oh, I know this is what I'm supposed to do. You don't come to him with the attitude of, well, I'm just going to try this God thing out, see if it works for me. No, you run to him like a child runs to her daddy knowing that he will embrace her and care for her and protect her. Why can we draw near to him fully assured? Because he's been faithful to his promises. In Ezekiel 36, he promised that he would cleanse us with clean, pure water. 
removing all of our uncleannesses. And he promised us a new heart and a new spirit. And that's exactly what he's done in Christ. He has sprinkled our hearts clean from an evil conscience, it says, and washed our bodies with pure water. So we draw near having been cleansed and washed. And we continue to draw near as we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live our lives in Christ. As his kingdom is increasingly manifested in our lives as we abide by his rules and live under his lordship. As we mortify the flesh and the the sinful desires and we put off the sin in our lives, we come closer and closer to God. Are you pursuing that in your life? Are you, in the words of Peter, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Are you pursuing a life of faith, of growing confidence in who God is and what his promises are, and living out in, in consistent, a consistent life with those promises? Well, Jesus gave his life to free us from guilt and punishment so that we could live for him. The second pursuit is pursue faithfulness is with unwavering hope. Pursue faithfulness with unwavering hope. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. When I say pursue faithfulness, I mean do not fall into faithlessness. Do not succumb to doubting. Don't set aside what you believe and capitulate to the culture. Don't turn away from the truth thinking it will ease the pain in your life. Don't set aside your commitment to the church because it's just too hard. Hold on to what you believe without giving up or letting go. Hold fast to the confession of our hope means to refuse to let go of what you believe. From the first century of the church through today, believers have been given the option, hold on to your belief in Christ or die a painful death. Through the years, believers have made the choice to believe in Christ and not let go of that conviction, and some have shown the true nature of their faith and let it go. Those who held on have been exposed to cruel imprisonment, to wild beasts, to the sword, to burning at the stake, firing squads, guillotines, and all manner of torture and death. And then there's innumerable ways in which believers have been persecuted and oppressed. Well, history records the infamous words of some of those who gave their lives for Christ, who held fast to the confession of their hope. Here's an excerpt from Herbert Lockyer's book, Last Words of Saints and Sinners. Albin is reckoned to be the first martyr from Great Britain who was beheaded during the Diocletian persecution in 304. As he died, he defied his foes in the words, the sacrifices you offer are made to devils. My name is Albin, and I worship the true and living God who made all things. Andronicus thrown into prison because of his unwillingness to deny the Christian faith, was cruelly scourged and then had his bleeding wounds rubbed with salt. Brought out from the prison, he was tortured again, thrown to the wild beasts, and then finally killed with a sword. This brave martyr who perished in 303 AD was dauntless as he died. Here's what he said. Do your worst. I am a Christian. Christ is my help and supporter. And thus armed, I will never serve your gods, nor do I fear your authority or that of your master, the emperor. Commence your torments as soon as you please and make use of every means that your malignity can invent. And you shall find that in the end that I am not to be shaken from my resolution. Oh, to have courage like that. As I said, many have chosen the other route to give up their faith and their last words have not been recorded because they went off into the abyss. All that's worth noting about them is that Jesus said to them, depart from me for I never knew you. Well, I don't know if 
any of us will face this decision. But we need to be ready not only to die for Christ, but also to live for him. Yes, we need to be willing to give up our life for him who gave up his life for us. But we also need to be willing to give up our reputation, to give up our status, our rank, our jobs, our our possessions, our health, even our own families for the sake of holding on to the confession of our hope. It's been said, if you displease God, it does not matter whom you please. But if you please God, it does not matter whom you displease. Why? Because it says in verse 23, he who promised is faithful. And he has promised that if you deny him, he will deny you. But he's also promised, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers and keeps his works until the end, he will have authority over nations. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and their name will never be blotted out of the book of life. The one who overcomes will become a pillar in the temple of God. And the victorious one will be granted to sit with him on his throne. Those are taken from God's promises to the churches of Revelation. In Christ, the promises of God are yes and amen. And according to Hebrews 6.19, his promises are a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. So the faithfulness of God is the solid ground in which we can anchor our lives in the tempest. Beloved, no matter what trials come into your life, no matter what men say or threaten you with, no matter what challenges we face as a church, pursue faithfulness with unwavering hope because he who promised is faithful. Finally, pursue fellowship with increasing commitment. Pursue fellowship with increasing commitment. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The first two pursuits are individual and personal. This one reminds us that we cannot live the Christian life on our own. You can, you can hold fast to your convictions. You can draw near to God by yourself, but you cannot live the Christian life by yourself. Sure, there are some exceptions. Being the sole missionary in a foreign land would prevent you from fellowship, but in the vast majority of cases that we find ourselves in as believers, we must pursue fellowship with increasing commitment. Meeting together, of course, is not an end in itself, It is a means to an end, and that end, the purpose for meeting, is to stir one another up to love and good deeds. The word translated, assembling together, in verse 25, is rooted in the the word synagogue. It speaks very specifically to gathering together for a sacred purpose, not just for social times and not just for entertainment, but for intentional, purposeful meetings together. And the verb stimulate in verse 24 is rather strong. It means to agitate, to provoke. And obviously it means it in the best possible sense. We're not here to push each other's buttons, even though we might do that from time to time. We're here to provoke each other, to grow, to encourage one another, to love with greater commitment and and to, to do greater acts of serving the Lord. When we gather together, it's not for the purpose of entertainment. Sure, we do that from time to time, but that's not the bulk of our time together. Our time together is meant for encouragement. Even here in this service, it's not to be spectators. It's to increase our love and good works together. In our individualistic and technological society, some might be tempted to think, Why can't we just benefit from all of the online resources? You know, there's so many faithful pastors, there's so many faithful writers and authors. Why can't we just receive our encouragement and our teaching from them? Well, as wonderful as it is to have unparalleled access to good teaching, we don't just need teaching, we need each other. When Christ saved us, 
He adopted us into his family. And when we join ourselves to a local church, we're agreeing together to live together as a family. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, the author writes, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Left to ourselves, every single one of us is easily self-deceived. We can be blind to our own weaknesses. We can be deceived to think that because we're gaining more knowledge, we're actually maturing in Christ. On our own, we can come up with strange interpretations, and without someone to correct us and guide us, we could go into all kinds of theological error. And without loving confrontation from others, we can be calloused, become calloused to the the sin in our own lives and become increasingly enslaved to sin. So we need each other to avoid self-deception. But we also need each other for positive reasons like strength and encouragement. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. The cloud of witnesses are those who've gone before us and have finished the race. They've encouraged us by their example to keep pressing on. In the context, he's referring to chapter 11, that hall of faith where he names 16 individuals and how they persevered in faith. And there's also innumerable others mentioned in that list who went through their own difficulties and their own hardship, yet they all finished the race well. And having finished the race... They stand in heaven reminding us it's possible because of Christ and it's worth it. We need each other to remember that we're not alone. We need each other to be reminded of the gospel again and again. We need each other for wisdom and encouragement into our own particular struggles. We need each other for strength when we are weak. We need each other to see our blind spots. We need to bear one another's burdens. We need to equip one another for greater faithfulness and effectiveness. So we must pursue fellowship with increasing commitment and not neglect to meet together. It used to be commonplace, even expected, for churches to have a Sunday Sunday school hour, a Sunday service, a Sunday night service, a Wednesday night service, prayer meetings, Bible studies, and so many other activities. Now, my goal is not to say that's the ideal, that's what must be done, but my goal is to say, or my purpose in saying that, is look how far we've fallen. So many people in churches think that all we need is just one, one hour service once a week, or twice a month, or less than that. For some Christians, it seems that the mentality is that church is where you go if your schedule is clear, if you're in perfect health, if you slept well the night before, if you haven't been busy lately, if if you don't plan to do anything else the rest of the day, if it's not too nice outside and not too dreary. In order to avoid being legalistic about church attendance, we've fallen into the other ditch and made it the lowest priority in our lives. We've gone the opposite direction of what God wants. Look at verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When you think of the end times, do you think about the importance of increasing your fellowship with other believers? Because if the Bible is right and things will go from bad to worse, which seems to be what we're seeing around us, then we will need our fellowship with one another to strengthen one another for the unrelenting spiritual attacks that are coming. You see, it is the strategy of the enemy to isolate us and convince us that we don't actually need anybody else. When you isolate yourself from the life of the local church, you're falling into the trap of the devil. So don't follow Satan's playbook. Instead, follow Christ, 
who created the church and builds up the church to equip and strengthen and comfort and encourage us. When Jesus joins us to the universal body of Christ, he intends for us to be intimately joined with a local body of believers, a family, so that we can live out the one another's that he's called us to live. Well, in closing, remember your privileges. Remember that Jesus died, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again so that you could have free and confident access to God. Remember that you have a great priest, even Jesus himself, who knows and understands and works on your behalf and for your good. If you have put your faith and confidence and hope in Christ, don't don't shrink back in fear of those who can do no more than promote you to heaven. But instead, draw near to the Lord. Pursue the Lord with a firm faith, knowing that you are clean and forgiven. Pursue faithfulness with unwavering hope, knowing that God, who is faithful, will protect and preserve and reward you. You are in his grip, and no one, no one can take you out. And then pursue fellowship with increasing commitment to the bride of Christ, knowing that whether you feel like it or not, other believers need you, and you need other believers. Now, friend, if you don't know Christ, what is holding you back? You've heard today that Christ is the sufficient sacrifice for sin. What prevents you from believing on him who gave his life for you? Give your life over to him and stop separating yourself from God, but allow God himself to reconcile you to himself by believing and submitting your life to Jesus Christ. You don't need Mary. You don't need the saints. You need Jesus Christ alone, and he is a good and loving Savior. Believe on him today. Acknowledge your sin and ask God to forgive you and he will receive you into your family. Talk to the person who brought you or someone around you or or come up and talk to me afterward. We would love to introduce you to Jesus. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father who does all things according to the counsel of his will You gave your son, your only son, to free us from sin and separation and your wrath. God, we thank you for who you are, that you are a faithful God. You are true to your promises. You are full of mercy and compassion and kindness. God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that you gave up your life that we might have life. And that even now, as we sit here on earth, you are standing in heaven, working on our behalf. Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes and open the eyes of those who are blind, that they might know the beauty and the glory of Christ and what it is to have true eternal life. Glorify yourself in us and give us boldness as we live in this world. In Christ's name, amen.